We come in our studies this afternoon to the similes that are within Psalm 133 as we continue to seek to see the divine artistry that the Spirit of God is painting for us within the language of this text. I begin by giving you a definition of what a simile is. A simile is an explicit comparison using a word such as like or as between two things of unlike nature that yet have something in common, so that one or more properties of the first are attributed to the second. Now, why is this literary device used in communication? Why is it implemented within God's Word? Well, particularly as it relates to God's Word, it is because of the fact that there are spiritual truths that are not readily understood by our hearts that are growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, And wonderfully, God has made a correlation between His creation, the book of His creation, and the book of our redemption. That spiritual message that the Spirit of God wants to break through into our hearts to illumine our understandings and to help us to appreciate His beauty. As it relates to Psalm 133... Remember that everything we read in Psalm 133 comes after the initial interjection that beckons our attention to a particular visage. That word again in Hebrew is hene. It is idu in the Septuagint. And it is an exclamation. It's an interjection. It's saying, look at this. And I don't believe that you properly orient yourself to this text until you realize that within your own understanding, within your own experience, even within Christianity as such, you do not have the eyes to see what the psalmist is beholding. As a matter of fact, he himself, and this is David who writes, recognizes that he does not often see what he is now seeing. And so in the interest of helping us to see this beautiful visage of beautiful brotherly unity, we are provided two similes whereby a comparison is made to help us, as it were, to move from the natural into the supernatural, to wade into an understanding by the direction of the Spirit of God. And so you see in verse 2, we have the first simile. We are told this unity that is so beautiful, so powerful, so supernatural, so in keeping with the heart of God, so much the work of the art of God himself, that until we learn to appreciate God's lines, God's perspectives, God's ordinations, his colorings, we don't know how to see it and understand it and process it. But in verse 2, we are given a simile to help us toward that goal. And we are told it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment. And then in verse 3, we're given the second simile. Here it is simply introduced by the word as. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew 
that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now with respect to understanding what this unity is like, I assure you there's an awful lot of information that is packed within these two similes. Indeed, it is a well that is so deep that we will not attempt to draw all of the understanding out of this reservoir. We simply seek to give some measure of a drink to each of our hearts from the Spirit of God as it relates to what these two similes can communicate to our hearts. This afternoon, we will focus primarily on the first simile, although I will be emphasizing to you as we look into these particular similes that there is most certainly a correlation between both of them, and we will have more to say about that in a subsequent study. But I do want you to know from the outset that there is a correlation between the two similes, and that correlation itself is very instructive. First of all, there's an ascendental correlation, as a matter of fact. That could be a coincidence, I don't know, but it's a wonderful feature between these two similes. The first simile speaks of Aaron. The second simile speaks of Hermon. The first simile speaks of the high priest. The second simile speaks of a high place. And if you reflect on these two similes, I want to start with something quite basic, but already we are introducing something into our times that is controversial. If you're understanding, as it were, the geometry of God's picture here that speaks to how unity looks, what it looks like, how it's arranged, then you should be seeing the geometry of a triangle. Why would I say you should see the geometry of a triangle? Well, let's start with Hermon. What does a mountain look like? The mountain looks like a triangle. It has a very high peak. And then that peak is correlated, integrated into sloping slides that broaden as it goes down to the base, as it meets the earth, as it meets the place where people are. It broadens very widely. And certainly Hermon has one of the most broad bases of any geographic entity, topological entity within the environment of Jerusalem. But then if you think about the simile as it relates to Aaron, and you realize that the picture before you is the anointing coming down on Aaron's head, going down to his beard, and then reaching all the way down to the fringes of his garment. If you think of what that looks like, once again, you are seeing a pyramid. And a pyramid, with respect to the arrangement of human relationships, with respect to something that is related to unity among people, the pyramid stands for the concept of hierarchy. As Aaron holds a position higher than that which is anointed beneath him and reaching to the people, so too the dew that is upon the mount of the peak of Hermon reaches down to all the people at the base. I said to you that that concept itself is controversial. We live in a time described as Peter, by Peter, as a time when men's minds are against government. 
Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and 1 and verse 10, There are those that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. They despise the arrangements of God. They despise government. Government is some representation of a hierarchical arrangement, isn't it? Presumptuous are they, self-willed, not champions of a better liberation. The Bible says they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to disrupt wantonly and recklessly and lawlessly the divine arrangements that God ordained before sin entered into the world. The term translated despise is kata phroneo. It means that their minds are against the ordinations of God. That is the first piece of information that you need to register in your spirits and put down in your notes. I understand within your own hearts, I know for sure within the culture, when a statement like that is made, there are all sorts of rejoinders, all sorts of opposing remarks that are at the ready to be stated in controversy with what I just said. But let's settle this down for the hearts of the Christians. I just gave you the word of God. And the Bible says that one of the characteristics of the last day is that there will be a mindset against the hierarchical arrangements of God's design. Jude picks up the same language in the 8th verse of his epistle. And you might think that the same Greek term is used when he speaks of those that despise dominion. But actually, in his epistle, the word is atheteo. And it means to declare invalid. It means to say, I don't like the way that this has been placed. It is the negation of tithimi. It is the negation of that which is placed. And here again, I'm saying God has placed things in a certain arrangement, but there is rebelliousness and a lawlessness in men's minds. And they have concocted a theory that has a show of liberty to it, but at the core of it, it is nothing but the old rebellion, in many cases, masquerading as a message of liberation, as a message of freedom from abuse and domination. And the Bible says that there is a spirit at work that is pushing things out of place in every sphere of human arrangement. And as a result, you will not see unity except for the mirage of a limited seeming manifestation of the unity of the mob. But that unity is a false unity and it never lasts for very long. Just read the history of the French Revolution among many other things to learn that lesson. So, for example, this anti-establishment gospel which is really an anti-gospel, for it is an anti-Christ message of lawlessness and destruction, is in keeping with the ministry of one of its apostles, a Jewish man whose name was not changed to Paul, thank God, at least that much we can say. He kept the name Saul, and his last name is Alinsky. In 1971, he wrote a book entitled Rules for Radicals. And he preached the gospel of anti-establishment, flipping things upside down, knocking down the high points and bringing about a leveling of all things as if that is the proper process toward 
liberté, fraternité, and unité. Égalité as opposed to unité, thank you. I bring that to your attention without bringing you an array of quotations out of that volume. We've spoken about this years ago, so those of you who are regular attenders may recall the expose we did on Sololinsky's work. But I want to remind you to whom he dedicated the entire diatribe. He dedicated it to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. He dedicated it to Lucifer. Well, I suppose when Mr. Alinsky was alive, he thought that Satanology was rather clever, but I have a feeling that he's not so smug about his view of Satan as he was when he was penning those lines. For there are many things that we could say about how successful Lucifer, the son of the morning, is with respect to his interest to rebel against God's authority. No, I think God is still firmly ensconced, as it were, firmly in his throne and was not in any sense leveled down to Satan's location. But having stated that Psalm 133 presents to us the geometry within the artistry of God of a triangle, a hierarchy, and that that image is very instructive and we will be paying attention to its details, I do want to acknowledge, as must be acknowledged, that after the entrance of sin into the human experience, the hierarchy itself can indeed become a source of oppression. That which is at the top can misuse its authority and oppress that which is beneath down the slopes, all the way down to the ground, and can misuse its authority. Think about ecclesiastic unity as one location within which to recognize this fact. I could say to you that Jesus established his churches upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And with respect to function, the apostles and prophets are higher than the believer that just recently has come into the faith and is to be trained and discipled into an understanding of God's will and purpose. But when you continue to follow that apostolic succession, as it were, and I say that with a smile on my face because there's no real way to follow that kind of notion, but I'm stating it that way to give you a very broad sweeping brush that is leaving aside the details of history, but to just show you a change that can occur when other things are not attended to as history unfolds. So, in other words, you have an ecclesiastic situation where there are those who are in higher functional places of authority than others, but if the entire message of God is not heeded as it relates to that relationship and that arrangement, then, again, if you follow quote-unquote apostolic secession, you wind up with Roman Catholicism. You wind up with a Catholicity, a form of unity that is a mechanism of oppression and abuse. So what should we do? Should we flip the triangle upside down and put the base at the top and put the point on the bottom and create a democracy within the church? 
and hope that the whole thing doesn't teeter and fall because it's so awkwardly positioned relative to how God arranged things? No, brothers and sisters, we should go back to Psalm 133 and other places and allow the message that is within that description to teach spiritual understanding to our hearts and pay attention to the details. I suppose you have heard the phrase that the devil is in the details. Well, I believe God has victory in all facets of life, so I offer an alternative to that remark. God, who is greater than the devil, as the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If the devil is in the details, allow me to introduce God into the details as well, and his details will overcome the details of the devil. No, brothers and sisters, we should leave the triangle, as it were, the hierarchical relate, the, the hierarchical arrangement as was ordained by God in place. But what we should do is we should be seeking for what we might call kingdom Catholicity over against some man-made version of unity. In this case, think of it, so many are attached to Roman Catholicism. Did Rome save you? Did Caesar shed his blood? Did Marcus Aurelius give you good understanding? Did Seneca train your morality? No, brothers and sisters, we should get rid of the names. We should get rid of the man identities that are at the top of the hierarchy. And we should keep the headship of Christ where it belongs. And we should seek for something that we can call kingdom Catholicity. There's nothing wrong with the idea of Catholicity. The idea of Catholicity means about the whole. That's what the Greek term from whence Catholic comes from. Catholicos means about the whole, the universal. And you know that I don't believe in what is often described as the universal, invisible, mystical body of Christ, but I do believe in the family of God. I do believe in the idea as stated in 2 John chapter 13, that there are sister churches that have a common faith and with which we unite in heart and in spirit and in purpose, and that the local church is an expression in this earth of the kingdom of God, and it is made up of those who are called to be ambassadors of that kingdom to this age and beckoning them to be reconciled unto God. And so I'm not going to digress into a statement about ecclesiology and some of those sidetracks that we could speak about, I do nonetheless want to say that whether it's ourselves as a local church and or we also think about something that is also legitimate, and that is, what about our elect sisters? Is it okay for the children of this assembly to greet the elect sister of another church that also believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is seeking to follow the apostles and their teaching and doctrine and so on. I say certainly that is the case and thank God that such is true and thank God that we have had that sort of experience ourselves. Many of us who have traveled to other places in the earth have had the experience of meeting Christians, whether it's in another 
country or even just elsewhere, even within Massachusetts and New Hampshire or throughout the country, you know what it's like to meet another believer and to sense at least the beginnings of some sort of unity. And that is precisely what we're talking about here. Psalm 133 is not just speaking about that which you would experience within your local assembly. That's where it should begin. But as I said to you before, we are teaching these messages in order to examine our hearts so that we will see whether or not we're in the full balance and listening to all that the Spirit has to say to His people. There may be blind spots or deaf locations within our hearing that God wants to heal and wants to open up. So open up your ears and your hearts to hear what God has to say. But this true form of Catholicity is so uncommon and has been throughout church history that we need to be led into an understanding, into a vision of what this should be through the gates of similes in order to understand the true path to beautiful brotherly unity. I hope you understand how true that remark is. I stress to you that the message of Psalm 133 is such that God is effectively saying that the gate toward true Catholicity, true unity locally and beyond joining with sister churches is a path that is so seldom traveled and it is so seldom traveled because few seek the narrow gate or the true gate, the appropriate gate that opens up to the true path to real brotherly unity. And in order to discover that gate, we are presented these similes, these two doors, verse 2, verse 3, gates of similes to open up to us, to open our eyelids, as it were, so we can start to see spiritually what is the path to true biblical unity. It isn't native to our spirits, my dear brothers and sisters, to understand how God has put this all together. For example, if you are just newly coming into God's museum, His Word, and you haven't taken the time to let the curator, the Holy Spirit, the doorkeeper, first train you and disciple you into an understanding of, again, God's artistry, the mechanics, the math, the design of God, and you just walk into the museum and you walk past the various pieces that God has put together so beautifully, the various texts of the Word, then you might see the triangle, as I've already expressed it to you, that is present in the visual depiction of Psalm 133, and you might arrive at certain conclusions and think that it is a validation of the hierarchical arrangement that you presently imbibe in your mind. And you could be completely wrong. I give you for an example the instinctive sense that two of Jesus' apostles actually had even after a good deal of time under Jesus' tutelage. James and John, you may remember in Matthew chapter 20, they were seeking the right and left of Jesus. I don't necessarily think that was a political position, but you can think of that in many ways in order to try to make a point. One wanted to be on the right, the other one wanted to be on the left. 
Maybe we'll call that humility, but that's as far as their humility went. By which I mean, they weren't going to argue who should have the right over against the left. They were going to be real humble and say, Jesus will let you decide that. But we definitely want to be on the right and the left. Why? So that we can outflank the rest of our brethren. They were seeking the chief seats in the kingdom. And they thought that that was appropriate. They thought that that was very fitting because they sensed what had been ordained since God created Adam and Eve, that there is a hierarchical relate, arrangement within, within the divine program. And they are quite right. Jesus didn't say there's no such thing as a right and left seat. I might remind you, if you aren't thinking of this already, that quite to the contrary, did he deny that there's a right and left seat? He said to these very apostles, but it included the remainder, he said that in the regeneration, that is to say, in the kingdom age, in the millennium, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's hardly a denial of the general arrangement of things, that there are thrones, and those thrones have positions of authority over others, and they're occupied by redeemed humanity. But back in Matthew chapter 20, you will see with me that Jesus had to adjust the way that they were intuiting the hierarchical arrangement that was indeed a representation of the way things were from the beginning, but they seem to have forgotten, as men often do, that sin has entered into the world and into your heart. And that's a big, big problem. But the solution to that is not to take your sin and then think that you have the wisdom to fix it yourself. It is to yield your heart to get things straightened out in your own heart. And then as each of us are changed and redeemed and properly ordered within our own spirits, then that will issue out into a proper arrangement within humanity at large. There is no other way to peace and unity within the human experience. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, Jesus called James and John onto him and he said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles, in other words, the men in the higher positions of governmental authority among the Gentiles exercise dominion over the populace. And they that are great, that is to say, they that are higher up in the hierarchy, they that hold higher positions exercise authority over those who are in lower positions. Now, Jesus did not say that I'm going to undo that arrangement within the world, among the Gentiles, among the human populations. But he did say in verse 26 to James and John, that kind of arrangement and what it all means and how it all works, it's not going to be one for one among you. It has to be changed. It has to be altered. It has to be spiritually adjusted. He says, it shall not be so among you. But you'll notice with me, if you're a careful reader, he is not so much saying, or not at all saying, I'm going to flip the triangle. I'm going to do away with leadership. I'm going to do away with hierarchy. There's not going to be anything within the representation of spiritual leadership. There'll be no Aaron, 
whether it's thought of as being under Christ's lordship or having already assumed his lordship, then looking at those that are called into the ministry and they occupy positions of authority over others who are not called into that sort of function among the brethren. He is not saying we're going to take all the peaks off of the mountains at this moment. He doesn't say that. He says, whoever will be great among you, let him exercise that greatness with a disposition of ministry. You will see with me, if you understand this passage properly, by harmonizing it with the rest of the Bible, there's a sense in which Jesus is saying to James and John, like Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you desire, if you have a spiritual impulse that may be of God for a position of leadership, you are earnestly interested in a good position, but this is how it must work within the family of God. You must exercise that position, not with a longing for domination, not with an abuse of power, not for self-serving ends, but you must exercise that position as a minister. Whoever would be chief among you. I understand that Jesus is not highlighting at this moment the position of chiefness because he's trying to get to the deeper message that isn't so cognizant in their brains that they are to be servants. But I'm telling you, it doesn't make any sense if there is no chiefness remaining. Because then everybody's a servant by definition. But he says, if someone is going to occupy the place of chiefness among you, he must do it with the disposition of service. And then he gives us an even as. Here's something like a simile. It's the beautiful example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Unlike the heretics who pull Jesus down from his position of uniqueness and make him a common man. The Gospels do not do that. When Jesus says, even as the Son of Man, and then he goes on to say something, we'll look at what he goes on to say, but is he denying his position at the apex of all of creation and as the head of the church? Not during his earthly ministry, not in his state as the eternal Logos, not after his ascension, in no way is he denying his unique place within the arrangement of God. But he said, while I live out the authority and live out the proper placement, I did not think that my equality with God, let's say first of all, that I am not suggesting to you it is a debatable question of doctrine. Jesus' equality with God. He says, I and the Father are one. I am not embarrassed. I am not negating. But what I am saying to you is I do not hold that position as something to grasp for selfish ends. I use that position to serve what's below. Like the dues of Hermon. Start from the peak and serve what's below. Like the anointing that properly starts on the head of the high priest is designed to serve that which is below. But through a proper flowing of divine ordination. And those who try to upset the apple cart do indeed accomplish their ends, sadly, and make a mess of things. 
They make, I suppose, we would say applesauce out of the church, and they are rotten within the bunch. Jesus, you remember in Matthew 23, said to his disciples, don't be called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And all ye are brethren. How does that fit with Psalm 133? Here I am presenting to you the image of a triangle saying to you, if you look at the simile of Aaron, if you look at the simile of Hermon, the high priest in the high place, you will see a triangle. And yet Jesus says, all of you are brethren. Well, as I'm informing you, we are in the process of opening the gates of these similes so as to recognize how God is coloring into the bland geomet geometric shape of this hierarchical arrangement. What is the rest of the details within this structure? That's absolutely key to presenting beautiful harmony and beautiful unity. You see, dear brothers and sisters, whether it's in the home or whether it's in the church, and ultimately it'll be manifest within civil authority when Jesus himself is a king that reigns in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment, when that sphere enters into what we can now begin to um, redeem, brothers and sisters, what you recognize is you are introduced into something of a triangle arrangement. There is such a thing as headship. There is such a thing as leadership. There is a hierarchical structure that all of life is arranged by. But when you listen to God and you do more than just take a general outline, a form of godliness, but you don't get into the power of the arrangement and, and, and thereby abuse that structure. You begin to be taught spiritually. You begin to learn what manner of spirit you are of within that triangle, so to speak. And this is absolutely what matters. So you see what I'm saying is Jesus is saying as it relates to your disposition to each other, you are not to think toward each other that I start off higher than you. I am the teacher. I am the rabbi. I am the educated one. I deserve this position and I require of you that you dutifully state with your own lips my respected title. I am doctor. I am, I am uh, rabbi. I am Lord or any other term that men are wont to ensure that others use in reference to themselves. What Jesus is saying is the way that the redeemed arrangement works is that that triangle, as it relates to, let's say, ecclesiastic arrangements, but it's also the case within the home. Let me tell you something. Before you enter into your position of male leadership within the home, before you enter into your position of spiritual authority within God's church, you must first see that that triangle is empty and you don't belong into it. Because all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We express that thought by saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus is saying, all of you are brethren. In what sense? All of you were sinners and all needed the same grace to bring you into the family of God. There's no one who is more superior than anyone else. Yea, the chief apostle can say that I am the chief of sinners. He can say I am not a whit behind any other apostle while also saying, though I and myself am nothing. And what he is stating when he makes those remarks is I recognize that with respect to my deserved position, I am at the absolute bottom. And any believer that understands him or herself realizes we're all at the bottom. And so the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The triangle has not been put into uh a occupied arrangement where various individuals are put in their various places as God would have it be. You see what I'm saying? That God's structure is the way it's always been since the beginning. But because of the fall, that which could have been at the top has fallen down with everything else and everyone has equally fallen down to the bottom. But when we say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, when those who are anti-establishment, anti-authority, despise the whole concept of government, and there aren't a few of them throughout history, and there are many of them in our time, when they hear Jesus say things like, all of you are brethren, when they hear Jesus say, the way the Gentile governments are arranged is not the way that the church should be arranged. And then they argue for the absence of any kind of authority structure, especially in terms of how it functions. Like, we might let you be the pastor as long as you not only wash our feet, but lick our feet and never use your own feet to ever establish everything among us. And they think that they are championing some sort of spiritual idea and they argue it from the concept of the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But I think that they forget that that location is nonetheless holy. The ground might be level at the foot of the cross, but let's start with the idea that it is a holy location. And what I mean by that is when you come to the foot of the cross, if you come in faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, do you remember with me that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 that Jesus is made unto us sanctification, not just wisdom, not just redemption, but he's made unto us sanctification. Why would I say that? I'm saying that when various sinners come to that foot of the cross where the ground is level and they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then they are sanctified. They are set apart onto God's service. And as a result, they become in Christ. And while the ground is level at the foot of the cross, I assure you that the cross itself is on a hill. And the one on the cross is at the highest point. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And after sinners come to Christ and are sanctified, the Bible teaches us that then Jesus himself takes those that are now in him and he arranges them how he pleases. He sets every man, indeed every woman, as it pleases him in life, in the church. They now have their placement 
not in and because of their own native qualities, but because they've been sanctified. They've been made holy. They've been made meet for the master's work. And Jesus arranges his household in a very definite fashion. And so the language of the Bible says things like, we have gifts differing. That is a hierarchical statement. A non-hierarchical configuration cannot allow for things differing. Everything is equal. Everything is on the same plane. He says we have gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us at the foot of the cross. And whether it's prophecy, then prophesy. Whether it's teaching, then teach. Whether it's gifts or giving, then do it liberally and so on. And do it according to the proportion of the grace that you have received. And so I will be making reference to that truth in the course of this study. But I want to draw your attention back to the simile and the language of the simile. And I want to continue to emphasize what the spiritual truths are embedded in this simile. I feel as though that I have laid before you something of a balanced view of the general topic by putting before you on the one hand, it is the case that in Christ we are all brethren and we are not to exercise lordship and dominance for self-interest. At the same time, in Christ and through the difference of varying giftings that are given us within the context of grace, none of which we can individually boast about, but all of which we must recognize in one another, or we are denying the arrangements of God. We have gifts differing. We do not all have the same calling. There is a hierarchical real, uh, arrangement, dear brothers and sisters, in a redemptive picture of human relationships, whether it's in the home, whether it is in the church, and indeed within civil society. Romans 13. He says, among other things, that again, the thing I would emphasize is he says, treat each other lovingly. That's what he says. And it is entirely out of fashion today. But the only path toward good human relationships and true freedom is the path of humility. The path of examining yourself and making sure that you're free from the bondages and the shackles of sin. Get yourself free from Satan and then you will love your neighbor. Whoever your neighbor happens to be, you will love and pray and you won't add to the cacophony of sinners arguing among other sinners and saying because we have relative experiences of oppression, that's going to be the end of the conversation and I'm going to commandeer the narrative and tell you that you have to bow to me. The simile is the following in verse 2. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now we have made the point in previous teachings, we have already presented to you in the first verse of Psalm 33, that there are two qualities to this unity. There is a moral quality, and there is an aesthetic quality, and the good must come before the beautiful. And so what we're learning here through the simile 
is a similar message, and that is that we are first acquainted with the exclusive, which stands for the ethical, which stands for the godliness, the good. Everyone knows that Psalm 133 speaks about unity. Everybody knows that. But how many have paid attention to the fact that the way that God pictures unity to us is he first starts with an image of exclusivity. And as a matter of fact, as you will see, though I can't do work with it presently, that the simile of Mount Hermon as well has these facets to it of exclusivity. We will get to that as the Lord allows in a subsequent study. But why, where is the exclusivity here? Brothers and sisters, the oil that we're reading about here is the holy anointing oil that in the language of the psalm is precious. It is not common. It is not something that you can make up on your own any old way you feel. It is exclusive. It isn't just any claim. No, it's like that special anointing upon a particular head. And that head, by the way, has a beard. Let's take the oil for start, for starters. In Exodus chapter 30, listen to the description of this oil. You shall make the oil, beginning in verse 25, of holy ointment. Holy means sanctified, means it's special. You shall make the oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, apotithemi. It shall be an holy anointing oil. Is this just anybody's oil out of anybody's closet? Anyone's charismatic claim? Anyone who says, I've got something to say, I've got a good warm feeling, I feel like I should be in charge? Unity can flow through me because I've got some snazzy, jazzy ideas. It shall be in holy anointing oil, and thou shalt anoint the tabernacle, the ark, the table, and the vessels, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the burnt offering, and the laver in his feet. And you shall sanctify them that they may be most Holy, whatsoever touches them shall be holy. Now, if you think about the temple and you think about the furniture within the temple, I believe that every Jew, even the less spiritually minded Jews, when they saw those different pieces of furniture that we just spoke of, the ark and the lampstand and the altar of burnt offerings, knowing that it had been anointed by the holy oil, they viewed those objects as sacred and special, not common. I think it's something like our Bibles. We don't have the same sort of arrangement now of symbolic representations of sacred objects. But if we take our Bibles, do you realize that that Bible, like any other book, is made of paper with ink written on the paper and some sort of a cover, many of which are not even that expensive. Some are relatively expensive. Others are paperback or just cardboard or buckram or what have you. But you recognize, don't you, 
With respect to the Bible, you know that there's something special about it. It's been, as it were, anointed with God's message. And you manifest respect to that Bible, don't you? And over there, I'm not going to say what version it is, because I don't want to get into just, you know, controversy or what have you. But uh, that might not be my favorite version, and it might not be your favorite version either, the Bible I'm pointing to, which, by the way, is not mine. It just happens to be around here. But what I'm saying to you and to all of us is that you will still respect that object with deference. You hearing what I'm saying so far? Because it's in the house of God, and it's been touched by God's anointing. And even if it isn't an expensive Bible, even if it is a sort of raggedy-taggedy Bible, you're still going to respect it. Because to you, it's set apart and it's holy, and your disposition toward it is always going to be that way. And there are plenty of stories of things like a Bible falls in the water or whatever, and somebody picks it up and dries it out and irons it off. You know what I'm talking about. Something like what people do with a, the American flag. It's a piece of cloth, but it has a certain coloring and an arrangement. And in that sense, it's been anointed. I want you to see the correlation between the anointing of the objects within the temple that I suppose because they're not persons, then the average Jew would look at all these objects and would have only one sort of attitudinal relationship with these things, and it would be one of deference and respect and recognizing its proper position, and you wouldn't take out the altar of incense and just put any old table in its place or make your own or say, I've got an idea for a lampstand myself. I think I'll take that one out and put my own in. You don't treat it that way. But verse 30 of Exodus 30 goes on to say that you are to use the exact same special anointing oil and you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. Office. Position of authority. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, This shall be an holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured. Neither shall ye make any other like it after the composition of it. It is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Whoever starts putting this together on their own, whoever compoundeth anything like it, and whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger shall be cut off from his people. Dear brothers and sisters, if that isn't the language of exclusivity, if that isn't the language of specialness, that this starts with something very select, very definite, very unique. This is a special oil and a special anointing. True unity starts with understanding that there is a divine special anointing that makes the whole thing legitimate and possible. And you cannot compound your own oil, your own charisma, your own 
thing by which you seal whatever you then choose to seal and then whatever results, call it the beautiful brotherly unity of Psalm 133. First, you need that special anointing. Let me read to you the language of Charles Simeon, the Anglican clergyman who was the notable Charles of the generation between, before Charles Spurgeon. And he speaks to the uniqueness of this holy anointing oil. He says the ingredients were of the most fragrant kind. Odoriferous is what he says, but I was thought I'd ratchet it down a little bit. The ingredients were of the most fragrant kind. The proportions of each were minutely specified by God Himself. And its use, when properly compounded, was solely confined to the things or persons connected with the service of the sanctuary. It was strictly forbidden to the whole nation to form any other ointment like onto it or to use any part of it for any other purpose than that which was ordained by God. It was itself most holy and it made everything holy that came in contact with it. At the consecration of Aaron, it was poured upon his head in rich profusion so that it ran down upon his beard, even to the collar of his garment, and it diffused on every side a fragrance that was inexpressibly sweet and refreshing. With respect to the outcome of this arrangement, what occurred? The fragrance... The beauty, the enjoyment was dispersed broadly and widely. It was widespread. But it started with something very special and unique, something very holy, something not common, something not, something that not anyone can just decide they have and they're going to start something with it. I've got a little motor oil in my back pocket. I'm going to start a church. And I'm going to grab somebody off the street or somebody who just went through seminary at least and I'm going to pour this baby oil or this motor oil or this vegetable oil or even this olive oil on their head and we're going to start a work here and it's going to become the beautiful unity of an ecclesiastic arrangement. No, Psalm 133 says, unless this starts with something very sacred, with an anointing that comes down from heaven, that no man can compound, that only the Spirit of the Lord can put together. It is a sacred anointing oil that is only kept in the temple of Almighty God. And you will find that He just doesn't disperse it on everybody willy-nilly. He has chosen men of God upon whom He places that oil in the interest of it being diffused upon the skirts of His work, the members of the body of Christ. But you might recognize with me that if you start with this select oil, this unique oil in all the earth when it was within Israel, and then as it relates to where we are, this special anointing that can only be found at the very top of a high mountain, that mountain that, as it were, reaches into heaven. And I'm not trying to make a correlation between earth and heaven, but then again, Jesus speaks of a latter correlation, so you won't mind, I suppose, or take me to task. I'm saying that peak is so high that that 
oil is only available from way up top from God himself. And anyone who tries to manufacture their own anointing, well, as it relates to the teaching of the Bible, they were to be cut off. I'm not suggesting with some men through church history that we should bring capital punishment against false preachers, just to be clear. But I am saying that they who disregard this simile and feel like you can get a church going at a cheap price, all you need is a little of enthusiasm, all you need is a little charisma, all you need is some smooth language and some smooth techniques and some smooth music. And as long as that begins to get people to come together, well, sure enough, that is biblical unity. Why couldn't it be? Why isn't it? Why would we say it's not? Psalm 133 says, Did you start with the precious oil? Notice that beauty, the beautiful, is dependent upon or limited to the holy. That simple statement would solve so much that has passed for a genuine work of the Spirit of God throughout human history. It would serve to manifest that it is not a genuine work of God. It is not beautiful. It is not pleasing to God. Our sense of the beautiful so easily bypasses the limitations of the holy, the proper, the rightly arranged. And I assure you, given what our hearts are like, that even hearing a message like this, next week you could make that same mistake. Some prophet, some ministry, some voice that seems to have an anointing, seems to have some sort of energetic power to it, may strike your heart as something pleasant, something pleasing, something beautiful, something that captures your attention and your longing. And you forget that with God, beauty is dependent upon holiness. There is no beauty to the unholy. A man running around like he's the anointed, I don't care what sort of suit he wears, I don't care what kind of church he has, how large it is, what kind of pulpit arrangement he is behind. If he doesn't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him, it is not beautiful to the angels. It is not beautiful to God. Remember what verse 32 of Exodus chapter 30 says, Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this a contradiction? Well, the silly might say it is. The sophists might say it is. Because it was poured on Aaron, was it not? And does he not have flesh? Or was he immaculately conceived? The distinction is, you don't pour this on someone who has not been set apart by Almighty God and sanctified in the service of Almighty God. This is not to be poured indiscriminately, lightly upon any flesh of any claim that feels like they should stand in a particular position to lead God's church because, again, they have a goosey bump experience. The Bible says you don't pour this sacred anointing on flesh. And the only thing that distinguishes any man from that category is, as I said, when we all meet Jesus at the foot of the cross, we are all unsaved flesh 
dead in sins and trespasses, but then we come to the foot of the cross and then we know no man after the flesh after that. Though we knew you before after the flesh, but when God says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them, or some other such language, when you've been separated from the mother's womb and then called by God's grace and there's a clear anointing upon your life, then you're not a recipient in an illegitimate fashion of that sacred oil and you just flesh running around with a claim of charisma. And as I said to you before, beauty is not in the numbers. It's not in the personality. It's not in the visage of the individual. Beauty is within the anointing. Beauty is in the divine arrangement. Take, for example, the wonderful words of William J. Seymour, who was used of God in a very instrumental way in the outpouring at the turn of the century in the early 1900s. William J. Seymour said these famous words that I'm quite fond of about the meeting that God had called him into a position of leadership. And he was a colored brother. Why, I could digress into the features of the time. I think I've told some of you recently when he was attending lessons in Charles Parham's Pentecostal teaching center in Topeka, Kansas, he wasn't allowed to sit with the rest of the students because he was colored and he had to sit outside the door. But God put an anointing on that man. And he said, Dear loved ones, these meetings are different from any you ever saw in all your born days. These are Holy Spirit meetings and no flesh can glory in the presence of God. Why, I think we're seeing an individual, and in fact, it has worked out that way. We're seeing an individual in William J. Seymour that was something of an errand in his time upon whom the anointing oil came down upon his head, and he did have a beard, by the way, ran down his beard to the skirts of his garment, and there was a revival in that time. And I know some of my friends in various trajectories and traditions of church understanding do not like the charismatic or the Pentecostal, and I can't digress into that at this time. I just can't. I'm sorry, but I'll... Stay with my statement. There was a revival in a mighty way in those days. Same is true with Evan Roberts. For example, it's contemporaneous as a matter of fact. Evan Roberts, the Welsh servant of the Lord. You could say revivalist, but well, it turned out that way. But he was, he was just a young man. I believe he was 26 years old when, when the Lord placed an anointing upon him. And he would just get in the meetings and he would get on his knees and he would say, Lord, bend me. Lord, bend me. And the Spirit of the Lord would come. And whether it's Azusa Street or Topeka, Kansas, or somewhere in Wales, it didn't start, brothers and sisters, by masses of people attending some sort of circus presentation. It started with a special anointing coming down from heaven upon the head of a certain individual, and then coming down that beard, down his hands, down to his knees, down to the skirts of the garment, down into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Someone said of Evan Roberts the following, as it was with William Seymour, so it was with Evan Roberts. He was an extremely humble man, refusing to be seen as the leader of the revival and rarely allowing himself to be photographed. It was this humility that drew the people. And once there, they would come under the awesome manifestation of God's presence. It was a supernatural experience to be in one of his meetings. But he was the leader. But he led with a servant's heart. He led with humility. He led by example. Do you understand what I'm saying? He led by getting down and saying, Lord, bend me. William J. Seymour was the leader, but he led by sticking his head in orange baskets, empty ones, orange crates, and making a statement to that effect that let's keep these meetings sacred. Let there be no flesh glorying. And of course, let me set the example of that myself. See, that anointing wasn't coming on flesh. He wasn't prancing around in his starched white suit and his glass pulpit and the fancy music and all the other stuff and talking about himself and trying to impress the people. Do you understand? I hope you do understand. And maybe you won't understand immediately, but perhaps you will understand ultimately that I think I'll put a pause here and continue thinking this through next time. May the Lord bless the word to your hearts. In Jesus' name.